This is John Stepling, and this is Aesthetic Resistance, podcast number 46, um, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, with me, Johan Edebo in Sweden. Johan, hi. hi. Hello. Uh, Corey Morningstar in Toronto. Hi, Corey. <laughs> Hiroyuki Yamada in New York. Hi, Hiroyuki. How you doing, John? Hi. I'm good. Um, I would mention at the beginning, uh, there's a new piece that, that Hiroyuki wrote um, that is up at um, Wrong Kind of Green, Corey's, Corey's site, and, um, and Off Guardian published it too, yeah? Yeah, right. Yeah, so I encourage people to read. It's very good. Um, I have a new blog post up, and um, people can go read that as well. Uh, and and always go and read Corey's Corey's blog um, because there's there's an extraordinary amount of information and and this sort of segues into um, maybe where we should begin today because uh, you know I don't know how many podcasts we've done now quite quite a few and th there seems to be with each passing week. A, a little more erosion in certain circles, a sur sort of erosion of resistance is taking place. In other areas, there's increasing resistance. The protests in France continue. They're enormous. Um, and and in, the, in the Caribbean, there have been um, very huge protests on several <clears throat> islands. Uh, and yet, and yet, uh, every every government that I read about in Europe seems intent on pushing through this vaccine passport. And I was speaking with my friend in Los Angeles today, who's a club owner, restaurant owner, and uh, they haven't mandated, um, you know, that that people show vaccine ID yet, uh, or that that workers be vaccinated, but his entire staff was in fact vaccinated and they all caught COVID. They all got sick. Mm. Um, so make of that what you will. But when I hear these things, I keep coming back to what's troubling to me. There's a couple of things with the, you know, number one is why is there such an enormous push to get everybody vaccinated. Um, uh, I don't have a, a complete answer for that. And the second thing is, you know, this remains, you know, COVID didn't suddenly become an incredibly virulent and deadly disease. It's still an extraordinarily mild pandemic. Mm -hmm. and. And, and the mortality rate remains extremely low. So when I hear people say, well, so-and-so got sick and there's more people have gone to hospital, I, I don't know how to, how, to, how to sort of reconcile all of this information with the fact that it doesn't kill very many people. The fundamental problem, fundamental reality here is that, yes, it may be, um, make people very sick. It may be a quite contagious virus, but it's not very deadly. And so everything, everything comes off of that 
reality, it seems to me. But anyway, Johan. Yeah, just to, to touch upon that, uh, if you look at the data, the official data from Sweden, you will see that 2020 was the, the 14th worst of the last 21 years with regard to excess deaths. So, I mean, it's been a very mild pandemic to say the least. I mean, you have, you have below the average of the last 20 years, you have way below average uh, with regard to deaths per capita. But, but where you have deaths, on the other hand, I mean, the deaths in the, in the third world are apparently increasing to a, to a great degree. Uh, I think you'll recall that last summer, in, in, even in May or June, I think it was recognized that the lockdowns were already causing more deaths in the third world than the virus. And uh, do any of you want to cut into this uh, issue? Otherwise, I can, I can just... Give you some numbers from from you know, I think well. yeah go ahead and give numbers actually sure 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 because I mean a year later I, I would suppose that the, the wear and, and tear on the sensitive economies of, of the, the third world would have worsened significantly and and if you look at something like Yemen from from which you hear nothing anymore it's constantly reported that um, that the, the Yemenites suffer the worst humanitarian crisis in the world. And official numbers state that about a quarter of a million people are dead, mostly for, from lack of necessities. But of course, we, we don't know how reliable or up-to-date this, this information is because Yemen is, is pretty isolated. But, but according to UNICEF, uh, world hunger has increased drastically in 2020 and 21, because, mainly because of the effects of lockdown measures. Uh, and you have had unrest in in many third world countries you have the riots in south africa which basically were brought about due to food scarcity uh, i went to the oxfam website to, to look into this a little bit and they wrote an article article in in the end of summer where they prognosticated that 12,000 people per day could die from hunger linked to covid measures which they said then potentially was more than would die from the disease but in retrospect we know that this is way way more than which died from the then people dying from the disease, and they say that the, mm, uh, today in a recent article they say that deaths from hunger are significantly outpacing deaths from the virus, and added that the number of people living in famine-like conditions has increased sixfold since the start of the pandemic, with, with many new hunger hotspots uh, emerging all over the Middle East and North Africa with an extremely poor situation in, in Venezuela, actually. <clears throat> yeah, well, and I, I read some article somewhere about um, the, uh, something like 167 million um, children yeah. are yeah, forced into essentially slave labor. And uh, uh, the, the conditions the lockdown has created um, are, are dire and, and that's not even factoring in the the, the psychological um, effects in the in the first world. The the you know uh, incidence of clinical depression and and alcoholism, drug overdose, uh, spousal abuse, um, and and quite significant increases in in homelessness. Um, and I did see several different articles talking about the building of what are really essentially internment camps for the homeless mm -hmm. um, with curfews and 
hour a day surveillance and monitoring and guards um, as if anybody wants to go live in such a camp. Uh, it, it's, you know, but, but prison building has been for decades the, um, the largest growth industry in the US. And so this should not be surprising, I suppose. Um, I, I think, you know, the reality is this, we're facing this, this massive orchestrated intentional class assault um, and, and, you know, we, we inch into a new phase of it um, every couple of weeks. And, uh, and I see no let up for that right now. Corey. You know, I just want to say Vanessa Bealy. I mean, she asked me what happened to anti-imperialists. And that's a good question. You know, when you have the follow up, we were talking about this earlier amongst ourselves, how, um, you know, prior to this, no one could even get the word imperialism off their tongue. And now all of a sudden it's vaccine imperialism, vaccine imperialism, <laughs> they, you know, found that word. And the truth of it is, I mean, um, if you look, so many of these countries, their, their median age of the population is so low, right? And we know that hasn't changed since the beginning. We know the, these um, healthy people within these age brackets don't get COVID. If they get COVID, they recover quickly or have no, no symptoms at all. I mean, the median um, age in Africa is under 20 years old. In 2020, it was 19.7. And the uh, median age in India is 28.4 years. These countries don't need vaccines. They need sanitation and fresh water, mm. right? Right. Um, right? And and, and so this is very um, imperialist, this position people are taking, um, you know, just like, just like the green, you know, the Green New Deal, and that's all very imperialist. It's, it's not um, revolutionary. It's not environmental. It's, um, you know, taking the side of capital and it's, it's against, um, you know, the working class and against the peasantry. Yeah, this, this should... It, it feels as though this should be obvious. And yet we were talking earlier also about, about Stephen Gowans, you know, who was one of the voices um, lamenting vaccine imperialism. And it, it's shocking to me because it seems to be, uh, seems to be, a, seems to contradict all his earlier positions because of, I've always admired um, his work. And I, and I just don't understand it, uh, you know, that, that from the beginning it was obvious that uh, the panic was manufactured and that, that the lockdowns were going to hurt uh, the lowest, the most vulnerable, the lowest income people in, in any particular country were going to suffer the most from the lockdown. The, the kind of um, the, the small business owner, the, the petty bourgeoisie, whatever you want to call them, were going to suffer this wave of monopolization. They were going to get bought up. And that probably could lead into a discussion of, of raiding pensions and other state assets. But yeah, um, but, but, yeah I, I, it, it, it's one of the depressing qualities about the last year and a half is how it's seemingly blind, it seems to me anyway, um, have been so much of the left and, and that they are so pro-vaccine 
And I, you know, I saw Caleb Maupin, uh, you know, tweeting that he was proudly fully vaccinated, got his second dose. But I see this kind of thing all the time. And, um, and that returns to my first question, though, is, is why, why, why this enormous, enormous propaganda push for vaccination? Um, anyway, Johan. Yeah, on, on that topic, I, I have a um, little segment later on, which we perhaps discussed earlier, but I was just going to state, but since since a, a, a basically centrist NGO like Oxfam even states that we have the, the greatest rise of inequality since even records began, this should be a red flag to, to people on the left all over the spectrum, because, I mean, this, if anything, would be a, a red flag issue that these these draconian measures have caused a lot more harm than good. Yeah. Um, and I, I think part of the problem, part of the problem, certainly not the whole of it. Part of the problem is that a lot of the voices that we're referring to as the left um, are academics, number one. Mm -hmm. And um, those academics tend to be reasonably comfortable. And I think over the last 25 years, that particular um, segment of uh, the populace yeah. uh, has, has grown more comfortable, but, but more out of touch with, yeah. uh, with the working class, with, with workers. And there's a certain condescension and paternalism in, in how they talk about it. Uh, and you, of course, you see the extreme version of that with the Democratic Party when Hillary Clinton talks about, you know, the deplorables, the flyover states. Um, but but, that, but that, that is a silent uh, position held by, by many in academia, I think. And, uh, and it's, it just... Yeah, I don't know what else to say, except that it's, it's it, one has to be awfully, awfully ignorant of the class dynamics involved in these lockdowns to 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 not recognize which side one should be on. Um, Corey, yeah. Uh, just building on that a little bit, um, you know, these the people within, like you said, these people have become really part of very much part of the capitalist system and they're very comfortable within it and identify with it. And for example, I'm looking at a paper this week. Um, it was written by The Economist, the Intelligence Unit. Um, it's called actually An Eco Awakening. So building on that, John, what you were speaking about. Um, when I'm looking at, when I'm doing research and I'm looking at the different, you know, at the 990 forums and I come across the salaries of these people within the NGOs working within them in all the different positions, they're always well above six figures. And as an example, anywhere from just over a hundred, which would be really, really low, um, you know, to 350, 650K a year um, US wow. funds. So it's, I mean, huge. And I was reading this week, the Economist Intelligence Unit put out a paper this year. It's titled, An Eco-Awakening, Measuring Global Awareness, Engagement, and Action for Nature. And then this is um, on the panel you have of us, the World Economic Forum, um, different groups like this. And it's basically measuring 
um, if they've yet generated um, enough marketing material and campaign material to acquire the social license they need to basically um, reset the economy this this fall or this winter COP26, where they'll not, you know, basically um, it will be rolled out in legislation, the monetization, the financialization of nature. So this paper is all about how they're doing that and the numbers so far. And it's actually a little bit heartbreaking because it gives the numbers in um, impoverished countries like India um, and Africa, um, Latin America, where they've gone in and Avaz um, has their stats, how many people donated to them. And these yeah. are people, like I said, making, you know, two, three hundred thousand dollars a year. And then you have people giving, you know, a dollar who, you know, are barely surviving. Mm -hmm. and, and it's just actually really depraved. But this is how the system works. Yeah, we should talk in some depth in a moment, I think, about about NGOs, about this phenomenon and the rise of NGOs. But Hiroyuki, um, you wanted to say something, I know. Well, I, I think this is really important to recognize that the whole momentum of lockdowns are basically big uh, systematic austerity measure against uh, the people who, are, who have been already oppressed. And, um, and the consequence is going to be more suffering, more uh, hardship. And, and that's where the momentum come, comes in again to um, profit off of the hardships. I think the yeah, financialization sure. of, yeah. uh, you know, the, the, the solutions, the corporate solutions again, against poverty, hunger, and those things, along with, uh, I'm sure there will be regime change operation based on that, uh, more sufferings, you know, more uh, unstable um, uh, governments, uh, they will be um, um, uh, the targets of the uh, imperial uh, restructuring. So uh, it, it really uh, ties, uh, ties together really well. And the, uh, um, and the, the parallel, of course, is the, uh, the um, uh, colonization of nature and uh, the huge role of the uh, NGOs, um, which uh, Corey, Corey has been uh, articulating uh, really, really well. And um, so um, in a way, I mean, this, this all makes sense, but at the same time, if we don't, and we don't um, <laughs> see it um, in, as a whole packaged deal, um, people are going to be saying that, oh, those people are suffering, that the poverty is uh, exacerbated and uh, COVID did horrible things. And now we need solutions. Right. You know, <clears throat> right. Well, this is there, there, there's two things here um, that I, I agree are very important. And, and one is that when Corey mentions the the salaries of NGOs and and many of them are much much higher, are are massive and um, these NGOs function like like global corporations or like pan national corporations and um, and they're that class of you know professional um, administrator 
um, has grown enormously and their influence has grown enormously. And, and you see the, you know, the writing on the wall. I mean, I continue to see ads everywhere for uh, what somebody called bespoke travel. Uh, you can rent a semi-private jet, you know, um, at, at great. I mean, these are not cheap cheap packages they're offering get your own jet you can fly to what they call one of the popular destinations in the world there's no discussion in any of these ads about vaccine passports um you know entry problems nothing it's just assumed that you know private jets get to come and go where they want as they have throughout the lockdown um and and there's never any you know there's never any requirement to show you know uh, proof of of uh, being being COVID free or or that you've been vaccinated or anything. Um, but but uh, and 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 the influence of these people is enormous. But but it it it, it it's um, it's something that seems largely invisible in um in 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 media and uh i'm i think that's probably intentional too uh but anyway i i yeah i i leave this open to if mm. Corey, you want to comment on this at all because i know you uh, yeah sure sure so info than me so yeah i mean the ngos are actually more powerful than the governments so now the governments have just been controlled by the corporations it's just become a whole global corporatocracy right and yeah. so, yeah, the NGOs have been serving as an instrument of the state and corporate power for some time, you know, keeping that power structure intact and, and expanding it. And actually now what we see on the contraction of capital. Um, but I just wanted to touch upon what's happening right now under, you know, under this huge smoke screen, like this huge, huge um, billow of smoke, keeping everything that's happening invisible. And I wanted to just... Um, say a couple things that I've seen this this week and one is from um, a little tiny radio program that Hiroyuki actually um, found and it's NPR it's August 3rd 2021 it's Marty Makari I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name right but he's a professor the professor of health policy at Johns Hopkins University which is a very influential player within all of this and he says on that show we've downgraded 19 to a mild seasonal virus. COVID-19 will become the fifth seasonal coronavirus that will circulate for decades to come. And then in the same radio program, he's just saying how, um, you know, people shouldn't be demonizing the unvaccinated because they have no, basically have no risk at all to those who have immunity. Um, he's talking about how they've never been worried. They're not worried about healthy children and never have been. So it was, um, even though he is reframing sort of the discussion, I think to come as Hiroyuki um, noticed as well, he's, he also made some very, very um, blunt, um, you know, statements within this interview that's hopefully still up on the page. And then if you can compare that to um, a, a paper that was just published on Wrong Kind of Green um, written by Spash, Clive Spash, um, an economist and another author. Um, he's talking about what's coming up, the financialization of nature, which is like basically a culmination of everything that's been happening behind COVID. What's been happening with no dissent and no eyes on it at all. 
Um, so they're able to really, really um, push this through. Um, very similar to what Warren Buffett did when he you know, built the, his new rail dynasty and everyone was watching Keystone XL pipeline and in behind, while he was funding it all, he's building um, a North American um, rail dynasty. But anyway, so out of this paper, I'm just gonna quote a couple of things. Human health, education and population are also to be monetized and treated like man-made capital. Together, three forms of capital, natural human, and um, I must have a glitch here. Um, natural human and produced, anyway, um, I must have wrote down wrong, are taken to represent the inclusive wealth of humanity. And then it goes on to say, um, they're talking about the economy. It's in this paper and he's basically doing a, um, breaking down an important paper. I need people to go to wrong kind and green and read all this to understand it. But in the paper, he talks about um, the economy. It's mentioned 21 times, um, the paper he's reviewing as though it's the only economic system that could exist, right? Um, and ideally, uh, an idealized market capitalism. And then he goes on to explain how um, under capitalism, the key to power lies in gaining private property rights over resources. This lies at the heart of the debate, debate over biodiversity. And what is at, at um, stake is the legal right and economic authority to capture the surplus created by the production process under capitalism. It is business banking and finance that makes money, not just being educated. And then he talks about the decline of arts and crafts um, quickly becoming regarded as redundant under the capitalist industrial revolution, which is basically where the fourth industrial revolution is going. So we have all this happening at the same time as all this, um, you know, amplified hysteria about COVID. And like those comments that I just um, said that Hiroyuki found, I mean, no one disputes them, and yet the hysteria continues, right? Right, right. Well, I mean, the, the, I, I should mention that the uh, that article was uh, one of the top uh, news uh, uh, found on Google. So, you know, people are exposed. And I think um, uh, people are being exposed to a fuel of uh, hostility from both sides, um, basically uh, create, create this uh, momentum that's uh, uh, conflicting. <laughs> Uh, among the people right you know, and then I, I, so so yeah so while we have that momentum building Hiroyuki they have to go faster and faster with their agenda right the narrative it has to happen the narrative is still intact and the narrative is crumbling right and so they're really really pushing on everything well, I mean, it's it's you know I wrote about that a little bit in the uh, in my article. It's 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 just like war on terror. You know, you you have uh, victories uh, here and there, and uh, uh, you know facts are revealed, and uh, uh, empire is doing this or that. But at the same time, everything is framed within this thing, and uh, uh, the whole momentum of uh, uh, militarism is not negated. You can talk about how you do it, how you bomb, how you oppress those people, but nobody's saying that uh, it's fundamentally wrong to colonize other countries. Well, I, 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 a minute ago, I said there were two things off of your original comment here, Yuki. <clears throat> and the other thing was something I have noticed in um, 
in a lot of, I, I don't know if I want to call it the left, but among activists I know and protest groups that I know, many of them personally and so forth, people um, protesting uh, police violence, people protesting gentrification, sometimes people protesting, um, um, you know, the, the entire criminal justice system, the racism involved and so forth. And all of, all of those topics are, are acutely important and the positions of the people protesting are, are, in my opinion, always correct. But there's never a link between those protests and imperialism and, right. and the imperialist nature of the COVID lockdowns and that why aren't those people talking who speak of police violence? Why are they not also talking about the the um, violence done to their communities by these lockdowns, the 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 food insecurity, the the financial precarity? I mean, people reduced to to begging and absolute penury um, is is it's somehow kept separate i mean i'm not entirely sure of the reason part of it is just a failure to look at things in a class perspective and and we know that and we've talked about that before but mm -hmm. it's but it's a bit more than that it's it's the way in which education has has compartmentalized thinking in general that that people don't tend to make those kinds of connections that um the coup in Bolivia can't be separated from police, uh, you know, uh, violently cracking down on peaceful protests in the United States or those videos we see of police punching children in Germany um, about which a, a video that went viral about which I have heard nary a word. Um, I mean, it looked like you know, Gestapo, uh, National Socialist, uh, roaming gangs of thugs um, terrorizing the populace. Now, those same kinds of roaming, roaming gangs of thugs were operative in the coup in Bolivia. The fascists that took power terrorized neighborhoods. Um, you kick a door in, in a poor neighborhood um, in Detroit or Cleveland or Houston, it is not significantly qualitatively different than kicking in a door in Fallujah. I mean, these, the, the power behind that, the authority behind that, the intention behind that is identical. Um, yeah, Johan. Yeah, I think that um, these issues of geopolitical competition and conflict, I mean, just like in every war throughout history, needs to be maybe focused a little bit on more here. I'm not, I'm not sure you're going to agree with me on this, but I, I had this discussion with you, John, a few days back. And let me just, just begin that, uh, given that we have this situation of resource scarcity I've been talking about, uh, I mean, there's even a, a lack of, of sand to make concrete. It's going to be imperative for capital to increase control over natural resources and, and relatively rapidly. And in relation to this, this push for a financialization of nature makes much sense to me. But I think also that the, the issue of, of geopolitical competition might factor into the drive towards this increased surveillance we see in the form of the vaccine passports. Uh, and you, you all know that the West, to some extent, 
the extent experience is something called the crisis of legitimacy with regard to established institutions. I mean, basically, there's very, there was very little trust in, in key legacy institutions. And, and this virus event and the response to it, it addresses this in the short terms and bolsters trust uh, all over the spectrum. Uh, but uh, and maybe you disagree with me here because maybe we can't speak of imperialism proper in relation to China, but long-term, I think, I think that the competitive advantage posed by China's quite intrusive surveillance measures, not least in terms of supporting political and institutional stability is a really important factor in, in all of this. So I think perhaps there's an argument that we are seeing kind of an arms race in terms of uh, implementing effective technological control grids, because these, I think, promise to be such important factors in terms of uh, optimizing productivity, security, social stability, controlling resources, which also is exacerbated by the fact that, that we have lost so much trust in, in uh, and political cohesion uh, with regard to Western institutions. So I think there's a real intangible need from the perspective of, of capital for something like a, a social credit system and this intrusive surveillance, because I think the competitive advantages of these things is so great that it's like nuclear weapons because you can't really afford to not have them from the perspective of, of a ruling elite. Well, I, I don't necessarily disagree at all, but, but I think that... Um... I think that that this this um, trend toward toward mass surveillance and um, you know data gathering and these huge data centers that that we know about, um, and this is again one of the one of the one of the ironies of of um, the anti-travel because the restrictions on travel part of the marketing to sell this idea is that it's woke, right? That that you're you're limiting. Um, uh, your carbon footprint or whatever, you're, you're preserving nature, you're not, tourism damages um, indigenous culture and hurts nature, so you should stay the fuck at home and, and you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and yet the, the, the tools to enforce these restrictions require these massive data centers that use up far more energy, you know, mm. to a power of 10 probably than yeah. any amount of tourism that you have in the world. So, um, so you, however, it's marketed the, the, the intention and, and the idea of a, of a, of a surveillance arms race is, is probably reasonable, I think, but even if China didn't exist, it would, it would probably be mm. going on anyway. Um, the United States wants to control resources. They see the problem with resource shortage. Um, it's, it's, funneled or shot through this prism of of like uh, residual eugenics ideology mm -hmm. i mean that has Corey and i were speaking earlier it, 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 that has never left us and all of the talk of um of population control and so forth smacks of eugenics it always does but um that raises another question because um we're seeing um a really significant uh, crash in terms of fertility and, and reproduction globally, um, with the, the exception of sub-Saharan Africa, they always like to point out. Um, everywhere, there 
I mean, you know, IVF is a massive industry now. It used to be a little cottage industry. It's huge now. And uh, it is because, you know, both male fertility and, um, and, and female fertility reproduction, the ability to, to have children and so forth, um, is, is resulting in incredible drop-offs in, in um, yearly births. And, and in many countries, um, the governments know this and, and don't have solutions. I mean, it's being discussed out loud that who will take care of the aging population mm -hmm. that we have now, who will run the machinery, who will take care of all of this stuff. Um, and then we have the next, the other topic that links all of these together too is, is this sort of transhumanist idea uh, again, we spoke of this earlier, you know, the, the, we can have artificial wombs. You won't even have to give birth, um, but wear your mask, mothers, masked mothers who um, will take their baby out of their plastic incubators. I mean, this is being sold as progress somehow. And um, the entire assault, class assault that's happening has particular subdivisions. There's a war on children. There's a war on women. There's the, you know, perennial favorite war on black human beings. Um, you know, it's racist and it's misogynist and um, more than anything, it is class-based. And uh, the, you know, the marketing is being paid for often by those those CEOs of these um, or the you know the head administrators of these NGOs so um, I, you know this is the pandemic has allowed has provided cover for an awful lot of this stuff to get pushed through and and we know that and um, it is one of the great invisible stories of, of 2020 and 2021 I think but anyway um, yeah uh, Corey Hiroyuki well, I, um, I think, um, uh, obviously, it's, it's really hard to um, um, bring in um, uh, the aspects uh, uh, that involves China because um, uh, we are basically drowning in the uh, massive propaganda uh, 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 momentum uh, for generations uh, since the uh, establishment of uh, Communist Party in China, and uh, the reason why they took their trajectory uh, of economic trajectory is uh, the imperialism, the uh, Western imperialism. China is uh, countering the uh, uh, Western hegemony by building its own um, cohesive economic structure that provides their own people and surrounding areas. So um, um, speaking of China um, competing with the West uh, in a way that's exploiting the people, subjugating the people is um, very, very, um, um, well, we, we, we probably, sh I mean, we shouldn't put it that way to begin with, because uh, if there was no imperialism, China isn't doing that so uh and there's also if you're talking about uh covet uh china has been subjected to biological attacks uh quite a few times 
and uh, um, they have uh, legitimate interest in protecting themselves from biological attacks. So um, um, they have different motives. Um, at least uh, we can understand that they have uh, these motives that are very, very different from what the West is doing uh, for increase their, I mean, persist their imperial um, um, momentum. So um, when we have this situation uh, talking about China is very, very tricky in uh, any situation because it leads to the uh, uh, the same momentum of um, uh, vaccine imperialism. Um, right, right. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's 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 truth in that. Um, you know who was very good on on the topic? Oops, sorry. The topic of imperialism was the late um, Samir Amin. Um, the the Egyptian Marxist uh, wrote for Monthly Review a great deal, uh, and and he was very very good in parsing out the nature of of Western imperialism and um, its dynamic with China and so forth. I would encourage people to read him. Um, but I I I you know the, we come back to this this fundamental reality that that we have been living through for for these two years now almost um that it it was introduced my sense was that you know the the pandemic was introduced as a pandemic and okay well and people weren't too worried we'd had pandemics before and the authorities were saying we just want to flatten the curve that will only take a few weeks you know then the few weeks became a few months but we're still just flattening the curve um and then there started um you know the the beginning of severe lockdowns and the people were going to have to be they kept using the word quarantine you know we're going to quarantine healthy people um and it's for your own good and i think the public in general was unprepared for the length of the, I think the length of those lockdowns, I, I think people thought we can tolerate a few weeks. We can tolerate a month. Maybe we can tolerate two months. Um, there will be some government protection. We'll get a, you know, a, a check in the mail to cover some of it. But then it went on and on and on. And the rhetoric from, from uh, leadership got more and more Orwellian. And it was as if they were pushing the limits to see what the response would be. And nobody was, was dissenting enough or violently enough or with enough anger to stop. And, and then it seemed to go sort of six months in, it, it kicked into overdrive. And that's when you started seeing uh, this 1% multi-billionaire class start raiding um, assets. Museums were selling off art um, in private auctions to, to you know, wealthy patrons um, out of view of, of anybody. And massive amounts of art was, was sold off. And there was, it be, I think people, it began to dawn on people that there was 
no debate going on. There was no democratic process. There were no town hall meetings. There were no commissions to investigate the pandemic. What would be the best course to take? It was suddenly government by decree. And to question that um, elicited a, a very authoritarian response. And I think that was the point at which people began to get afraid some of them of the virus, many of them of their own government. Um, yeah, Corey, you were going to say something. Mm -hmm. I was just going to say it takes a long time to restructure a whole global economy. Mm. <laughs> you know, like it does. And I, I think they're working as feverishly and as quickly as they can. They're trying to ram everything through this um, as much as possible at mm. COP26, right? Where it all comes together, where the everything... Um, coalesces the pandemic and the environmental every everything will come together to push everything through that that they've been working on for um, years and decades including if you go back to 2008 and 2009 they were ready right at that point in time to launch the new global green De um, green new deal and for whatever reason that stalled and that was um al gore that was the united nations that was avaz i mean the same players all working together. Well, since then, um, jump forward to 2019, then you had um, the World Economic Forum partner with the United Nations and take over, you know, they're at the helm of the Sustainable Development Goals, um, also known as the Global Goals, which are emerging markets. And then you have, um, I'm not sure, I can't remember off the top of my head what year, but then you have the C40 cities, which is Bloomberg and Clinton. And then you have in 2019, they launch a global, um, actually the year before you have the United Nations, they come out with a new paper again for the global, uh, we need a global Green New Deal, right? For, um, because the economy, the capitalist system's collapsing. Then the following year, you have C40, C40 cities, and there you have AOC, you have Shiva at the same conference, you have all these, um, you know, people that are made iconic by media um, as left, left sort of, you know, icons. Right. Have all them, you have 350.org, you have We Mean Business, which, you know, um, Greenpeace helped create, you have everyone there. Um, and, and then you have the same people like very, very slowly, they talk about Green green New Deal once in a blue moon, you'll catch them saying global Green New Deal, but they've already decided that the Green New Deal is global, right? And then you right. jump forward to 2020. Now you've got um, another new NGO promoting the global Green New Deal for this year, COP26. You've got, you know, um, again, uh, more renowned, quote unquote, leftists that are you know, approved by this, you know, by the ruling class, you had them brought into the fold to push it forward. Um, you know, I think I mentioned Klein, um, like I said, 350, like very, very soft. What did they call themselves? Bright green, whatever. You've got all this um, momentum <laughs> building up. So you can call it build back better. You can call it great reset. You can call it green new deal. You can call it global, um, New Green Deal, call it whatever you want. It's the same thing. It's a restructuring of the global economic system, right? To serve the same people. It's always served the people at the top at the expense of the people on the bottom. Right. And well, I, I, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, please. At the expense of nature itself. Right. And this was made possible partly, um, you know, under Obama, we started to see this massive transference of wealth to the top. 
and uh, unprecedented, right? And suddenly, you know, the top 3% that owned everything became the top 1% that owned everything. And, and they pretty much, by the end of Obama's second term, owned everything. And, and so you had this concentration of wealth in a few individuals who became um, extraordinarily powerful and influential. I mean, you, you mentioned Walton and we, we know Gates bought up all the farmland in the United States and different places. And the Bush family has made massive real estate purchases all over the world. Um, uh, and, and that level of wealth is is so extreme that that it is unprecedented in a certain sense because it allows for and I mean I said this in the blog but you know I mean it allows for uh, a monopolization of different things that is unheard of I mean nobody's nobody even mentions um, breaking up monopolies anymore it's like an obsolete concept just like the free market is an obsolete concept. Uh, be, there is no market. There is this extreme wealth, and they're creating, uh, a, like you say, they are restructuring in order to protect their interests and to provide a safety series of safety mechanisms for social unrest that we are likely to see globally. Mm -hmm. um, there's probably some aspect of this that we're missing, though, right? Um, I don't know what level of resistance they anticipate, and I don't want to give them, you know, this very extreme wealth, high net worth class. I don't want to give them too much credit for intelligence either. There is a tendency among leftists, I know, to think of these people as having anticipated everything. They know everything. It's all planned. They're going. It, that's not true. They're, they're as delusional as anybody else, maybe more delusional. Um, they just have a whole lot of money. And when you see the capricious, you know, expenditure, Bezos and his spaceship and e. Branson and his little journey to almost outer space, um, it's like children, it's infantile. And do, to not recognize, to be so tone deaf, not recognize how appalling that expenditure of money is to try to sell that as like gee kids you'll get to be on a spaceship one day too it's stunning these mm. people do not mm. have all the answers they have not figured out everything and it's 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 dangerous to to give them too much credit i think um, the, uh, so so yeah go ahead please well i i just wanted to uh, uh kind of repeat what corey was saying there there have been uh, momentums uh, multiple momentums that are uh, uh margin to uh uh colonize nature and humanity and uh, uh that requires a huge smokescreen and that's what we are seeing basically i think and the intensity of the lies and contradictions uh, you know, no, I think that's true. I mean, I think that's true. Um, Johan, yeah, yeah, I just think that well, this uh, the deregulation of the financial markets must be a, a, a perhaps the most important factor in the in this uh, this uh, wealth and, and property transfer because when you deregulate the market as they did in in the in the exactly when it happened, but in the wake of of the last financial crisis. 
well, you essentially you get a situation where those with lowest borrowing costs can can basically outbid everybody else, and then eventually all all assets will will tend in their direction over time. And I think that's what we're seeing here, basically. Um, yeah, I I I mean, um, I I think I'm only positing the question or, or the idea rather really that that um, yes to smoke screens COVID has allowed their their success in sustaining the panic about this mild virus is remarkable that part is remarkable to me I see people in the grocery store 25 years old wearing masks and I just want to scream at them the fuck are you doing you know, you're not going to get sick, okay? You're 27 years old and you're perfectly healthy and you live in the most, you know, environmentally pristine country in the world, quite possibly, in Norway. You're not going to get sick. Right. Um, but, but you know, the, the point being that, that has this, they have sustained this panic far more than I suspect they even anticipated. They, the ruling class, the orchestrated, the leaders of this orchestrated... Um, hysteria but uh it, it 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 doesn't mean they anticipated everything and um and you know i saw i saw resistance to the vaccine passport and i don't the grenadines or somewhere in, in um in the caribbean i believe and um a couple of places actually and um was it martinique i don't remember but but um, quite, quite angry, um, borderline violent protests um, that were calling for the ouster of the prime minister and, and um, people were not accepting it. Now, you know, does that matter? Does that, is that violence factored into the plans for the people to, you know, who, who decide these matters? I don't know. But I, but I think the French protests um, are, are far more uh, um, intense and in larger numbers than was expected. The media's absolute silence about this suggests that, uh, that they're afraid of it somehow. They, they, you know, they don't want this to catch on. Um, I don't know. I don't know. The, I, the... I think in a way it really doesn't matter which way, uh, you know, uh, it, it goes uh, as long as it's uh, destabilized and the people are living in fear and uncertainty that would facilitate um, the force of privatization and financialization. They can just um, um, force through um, the confusion. Yeah, I mean, if it stays, if it stays, um, you know, if if uh, the resistance stays fearful and and disorganized, and um, they accept minor victories instead of in, instead of you know real change on some level, um, it's yeah, it's going to fail. But um, there are degrees in all of this. I don't know, um, Corey. Yeah, you're. Well, last month um, in July, they, the Secretariat of the UN Convention on Biological Diversity released the first draft of its new post-2020 global biodiversity framework. So this is 
this is the framework to basically for the whole global economic and societal transformation, right? The, the, and it's around mm -hmm. the corner. This is all to be approved. They've already said it will be approved in October and it's August, August, September, October, right? So this has been a really good, um, you know, what we'll call it today, smoke screen. This has been really, really effective. All this is oh. happening. Like yeah. even what's the climate movement doing? Demanding solar, right? <laughs> nonsense meanwhile this is happening right mm. yeah. i mean it's just sort of you know again it's just sort of stunning well it is um johan yeah and just one one obvious mechanism for for this this asset transfer is the fact that that uh, the, the the pandemic has as as a headline reads added 19.5 trillion dollars to global debt uh, the the governments all around the world are indebted to to a, a higher degree than basically ever and, and when these debts mature well then you can basically see natural assets and the dog wanted something to say. Yeah, no, I listen. I love hearing <laughs> dogs on podcasts. Yeah. That's fine with me. So when the debts mature, you can basically just seize these assets and put them in this framework of, of uh, financialization of nature. I mean, that's probably a mechanism that will come in play. Yeah, the, look, I think that's probably a really, um, you know, a, a, a perceptive point. And, and uh, I, I, I constantly feel as if I am missing aspects of what is going on. I don't understand certain things. Um, I, I, you know, the, the vaccines are having extraordinary, you know, there has been extraordinary numbers of people with, with serious adverse reactions to the vaccines. Here in Norway, I don't know, 12,000 people or something with very serious um, vaccine reaction that has hospitalized them. Now, the equal numbers of, you know, comparable numbers, many other places. Uh, and yet there has been not a, not a whisper of, of recalling the vaccines. Um, previous vaccines were recalled with half that number of, of adverse reactions and deaths. I mean, you know, huge number of deaths as well. And so, cause actually I think it was 12,000 deaths in Norway and something like 40,000 adverse reactions, but it doesn't matter. The point is the vaccines should have been pulled in a normal um, environment. They would have been pulled. Um, they're clearly untested. It's an experiment. And, um, you know, they have factored in collateral damage as, as perfectly acceptable as, as, you know, giant corporations always do. I mean, human life is just spillage. You know, it it's um, it's it's part of the expected cost of uh, of reaping what Pfizer makes. Like, you know, three hundred billion dollars or something um, off their vaccine. And of course, now they are saying increasingly you're going to need one booster, two boosters, three boosters, four boosters. Um, you will never stop getting booster shots and um, you will never stop being frightened. And, and, and that's what one is facing. Um, Corey. Uh, and just no matter how severe those adverse reactions are, whether they're death or whether they're um, people have had um, their lower limbs amputated or, you know, heart attack strokes, what have you, it's always the same, you know, within that article coverage, it will say somewhere, but, you know, we still think the benefits outweigh the risks. Well, that's right. fine unless you're one of the people whose loved ones have died or you've been severely affected and disabled by it. 
right? And so, and, and I mean, this is just the beginning of on um, this experiment. We don't really know how, you know, we don't really know the harm that will be caused. We won't know that for quite a few years, right? We're just seeing the right. No, I, we, you and I talked earlier and, and this has haunted me since the beginning of this enormous vaccine push. I thought, well, what, you know, they, they keep saying, no, no, you know, we, we spent a lot of money, we tested it and uh, there's no way they can know the long-term effects. But I do wonder often uh, if they don't plan, you know, that some of the long-term effects aren't planned. Um, the nature of fertility and this vaccine is a topic that um, becomes very frightening. And it's one of my more paranoid um, mm. nightmares. Um, but yeah, Corey. Yeah, I just think that I wanted to mention that as well. I think we really have to start looking at that, you know, how this may possibly be tied into fertility somehow, because we do have this happening. We have the you know, we have at the helm the same the same individuals with the same ideologies, and that's eugenics, right? We've seen that right. for decades. These are the same people, the same families, that you know, the same type of the same white supremacist system. And so, this is um, you know the gene editing that that is coming. I mean, they've set up these um, panels on the WHO, and and um, you know they're looking at international global panels to sort of try to put in um, a spin, you know, we'll make this ethical and, and all this other stuff like they do with everything. But gene editing is a real part of this and it's not really being looked at. Um, no one's really um, considering where this ties into it. And so right. this really is coming like a woke eugenics. They will frame it and make it woke and they'll bring in their celebrities and they'll bring in their influencers with their new gene edited babies and everything else <laughs> yeah no it's terrifying and and um uh the, the you already see celebrity mouthpieces um what was it was it jennifer aniston saying i i can defend the fact that i have cut off all my unvaccinated friends you know well i you know it's a small miracle she has friends at all but but that kind of propaganda we're going to see these influencers. We're going to see these celebrities saying this kind of stuff, and it will become fashionable in a in a certain demographic anyway. Um, the only hope for resistance to that sort of stuff is is going to come from the actual working class. What's left of it, the remnants of um, <clears throat> of the of the proletariat in the United States. Now, elsewhere, um, the, I think working class unity is stronger. But but this goes back to my point earlier. You know that 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 the these other protest movements, whether it's you know um, gay rights, uh, you know uh, the 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 trans uh, the defenders. <laughs> You know, I just watched the Olympics. That's like, I'm dismayed. But anyway, um, the, you know, all of, they don't show solidarity with, for instance, the the coup and, and the white, you know, political class that went into Haiti and put, installed another president of their choosing, not of the choosing of the Haitians. Um, I don't see solidarity in these groups with with the people of Venezuela. I don't see solidarity with the people of Syria. I don't see solidarity, you know, with anyone but their own group. And this is, 
which sometimes is they are they are making you know remarkable um having remarkable wins in in small areas but this is you know this way we could launch into lenin on reformism or something here but um uh it, it it's it's a problem that this huge kind of ideological compartmentalization or something i don't know how to describe it um is very problematic and it it stands in the way of i mean the pandemic travel restrictions the, the abrogating the right to travel anonymously across a border this is an inalienable right this is a basic right of all human beings it has mm. been for many 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 years and it has just been torn from people and i'm not seeing a level of anger about it that i would have expected um hiroyuki yeah well i think um uh, the part of the reason is that the uh, economic strangulations uh have been uh, very very acute and um, um, for the for the past generations and this COVID thing totally exacerbates it. So basically, those people who are oppressed are in um, economic straitjacket. They they uh, cannot uh, stand against uh, what's going on. So the focus seem to be those who can speak up and um and that kind of um, um defines the uh, the nature of the momentum we're facing a uh, um, little bit of uh, reactionary um, uh, tendency and uh, uh, people talking about uh, this is communism, this is socialism, um, you know, yeah. that kind of uh, angle are coming out, coming out from the people who are opposing, uh, people who are being threatened. And right. um, th this is, this is uh, something uh, we need to look at it. We need to step back and look at it and um, uh, analyze uh, what it means. Right. No, I think I think this is a really good point. And and, um, you know, the the but but I will only say that if if you go back and read, you know, the letters of George Jackson, for example, read Soledad Brother and and James Carr's autobiography, read a lot of the writings of the Black Panthers, the, that first generation, um, Malcolm X, for that matter, there's enormous solidarity with 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 the downtrodden everywhere they were acutely aware of the plight of palestinians um you know they understood colonial history i think most of the protesters in the united states even um protests against anti-black racism um there's a pretty sketchy knowledge, their political knowledge. There's a political immaturity that you didn't see in people like George Jackson. Mm. I mean, Fred Hampton was what was he was incredibly young when he was shot, um, assassinated. Um, you know, he was in his early 20s, I believe, maybe even young. He's very young, remarkably erudite um, mm. for for that age. Remarkable. So. So something has changed, you know, and it has been the erosion of education is why I keep writing about that so much culture. And, you know, Johan and I, I know we spoke a couple of times, maybe even on the podcast about the loss of a counterculture, a, mm -hmm. a, a bohemian setting, an urban setting where 
where people, you know, could discuss. There's no left party either where people can go discuss these things and learn from others with more knowledge um, about the nature of of class, of solidarity, of why aren't you on the side of the people in Syria? Why don't you know which is the right side in Venezuela or Haiti or, you know, um, uh, but they don't, but they don't, they, they hear sound bites and, and, oh, Aristide. Yeah. He was, he was an idiot. Wasn't he? You got, no, Aristide was like, you know, um, remarkably pure and untainted by any flaw as far as I can tell. Um, he just he just couldn't beat the man, you know. He couldn't beat the machine, and and um, but but propaganda works that way. It's insidious. Oh, Maduro, he's yeah, he's screwed up. You know, I heard he's, you know, uh, did this and then. And you just want to say, do you understand the pressure, the assault against Venezuela? He has done an incredible job. We've given you know, and really, you know, singularly small palette of choices, menu of choices. Mm. Um, he, he has done, I think, an exemplary job, but, but, but that's a big discussion. You have to sit down and have that discussion. That's, mm. that's um, not a simple issue. Imperialism, American imperialism is not a simple issue. It's, um, it's, it's profoundly complicated. And, you know, when you go to Corey's site, and I encourage people again, go to the wrong kind of green. There's so much to be learned from reading. Just open it and read and see the charts of the NGOs, like on education. It's, it's almost comical. There's, you know, save the children, something league for children, Vodafone, Google, um, all of these, you know, corporations and NGOs. Um, are supporting these reforms supposed in education, but they're not reforms. They're to further completely um, uh, gut the educational system. And, and, and this is what you can learn reading wrong kind of green. You understand, look, the track mm. record for these kinds of corporations is very, very bad. You know, why do you think they're going to suddenly do good? Why do you think they care about the future of children? They don't. They don't. They care about themselves and they care about their own children, perhaps, that their children will get to fly that semi-private jet to Aruba, but they don't care that anybody else gets to do that. Anyway, um, all right. Uh, any, any other thoughts from people here before we wrap up? Um, I guess I, I could just say a little bit more about the fertility thing and uh, yes, that. Please. Um, yeah, I think we really need to keep a close watch on that. For instance, why is it? I mean, a lot of people, you know, you see it all over the place. Oh, you know, it's a depopulation agenda. Like, I'm not saying that agenda doesn't exist. Um, I'm not saying that's the um, purpose of the vaccines. What I am saying is basically... If that's the case, why is it all over the Western world and not in the global South? I mean, if they wanted it to be there, um, if they wanted to flood it, flood the vaccines there, that would have happened already. That hasn't right. been the case. It's in the right. Western world. So, you know, you have to look at that. And um, like it, it's really interesting, right? Because um, we've never really seen this sort of push. Why isn't 80% enough? Like, why isn't 90% enough? They've had 
you know, why does it have to be every single person gets this vaccine? Every single person. And it's, and it's, it's a few things. I mean, we know for sure this is the foundation of biotech going forward. This is an experiment. No one, everyone knows that. They've announced that. That's what this is. So they have to gather tons and tons of data, right? There's tons and tons of data being collected as they study what happens to people, as they study how biotech and mRNA will work, you know, and DNA going forward. This is very, very um, important to them. I mean, imagine if you were studying this, this is such a gift to be able to study on a whole global population, you know, in this yeah. way. And right. so, yeah, they're, they're gathering the data. I mean, another thing about that in, in impoverished um, countries, they don't have the capacity to gather all the data. So why even bother, right? Why even bother? Right. Well, I think one thing is because that's a real question. Why is why is the first world getting all the vaccine? You know what what Gowans and those people call vaccine imperialism? Um, yeah, it's probably for the very reason you just cited. Um, and it's a kind of disciplining of the first world through these these biometric, um, you know, digital passports um, with well, that's, the, that's with another goal of 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 impoverishing the first world. I think they want the first with they get fucking hate. The ruling class wants the first world to become the third world. They want American workers to resemble Haitian workers. That's what I think. Well, in another aspect of that, John, too, like for, we were the ones that fly, right? I mean, 99% of the population have never flown. So they're, they don't need a, a vaccine, you know, they don't need a passport. They're not really going to be part of this system, not yet, at least, right? Until right. they get down and, and set up, um, you know, Africa in the image of the, you know, quote unquote. Unless US. they can gene edit them and make them white. Right. Then, and they can, and they can they do can that, travel. right? They've yeah. done that in yeah. mice. Right. Yeah. So, right. but, but yeah, so there's a lot of questions surrounding like who's getting this and why. Um, and attached to that again, there's like gene editing coming. There's like the global surveillance grid being set up. Um, there's all sorts of different avenues, but everyone's just, you know, hypnotized by the whole, you know, the whole like vaccine variant, 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 variant. You know. and, and it also it comes back to the fact that the, the whole thing is aimed at the other people who could engage in revolutionary activities, uh, have the resources and, mm. um, you know, mm. momentum to do it. And uh, those people should be in line, should be mm. uh, under control. And uh, mm. that's, that's part of the reason why uh, people are getting vaccinated and certain people are not getting vaccinated because they are mm. suffering and destitute and they are targets of financialization through the uh, methods that are concocted now. Hmm. Um, world, world econ oh, sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. I, oh, go I, ahead. I, the World Economic Forum is talking about in an article I read a few days ago, 8 billion, um, 8, 8 billion vaccines per year for COVID, right? 8 billion a year. <laughs> How many? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and and they're, they're talking about setting up like a global um, infrastructure of these um, basically like a biotech infrastructure for the whole globe going forward so i mean this whole bioengineering economy is massive and this is a huge part of it this whole vaccine experimental trial thing right 
I I really have something to say about this. But Johan, yeah, you wanted to say, please. Yeah, I just had a, had a short poignant quote by by Thucydides, which I wanted to to end on. <laughs> okay, well, hold Thucydides till the end. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, because I love nothing. I had a whole thing about Thucydides in one of my plays, actually, yeah. see of Cortez. But anyway, um, uh, and I think I've probably forgotten what I was going to say. Um, so maybe, um, maybe read ah, something that Corey was saying. I wanted to, 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 oh, oh, I know what it was. Hmm. Here's what it was. And then you can read Thucydides. Um, I have had a difficult summer because um, one of my twin boys got Lyme's disease, right? Lyme disease from a tick bite. And it was misdiagnosed and diagnosed too late. And um, he ended up getting facial palsy, which we hope will go away. They tell us it'll go away. It's very gradual to go away though. And, um, and his eye and, and right side of his face is immobile and so forth. But the point is, he's, he's going to be fine, I believe. But the point is that um, uh, despite an extraordinary increase in tick bites and, and the disease associated, Lyme disease, bullyrosis or whatever it's called, um, in spite of that, doctors were incredibly slow to recognize what it was. And it just reminded me of Every time I've gone to a doctor in the last 20 years, I've gotten bad information, misdiagnosis, wrong, um, you know, medicine given to me every single time. Mm -hmm. It was not ill intentioned. It was just they just didn't know and mm -hmm. they have a lot of work and they don't care enough. Nothing was life threatening, probably. So they so they didn't do it. So when I hear of the, you know, these extraordinary advances, the gene editing stuff on the cover of Time magazine, and look what we can do. We can make black mice white. Hint, hint, imagine what, you know, we could do with, with Burundi and, and, and Tanzania. They could be white someday. Um, that's not really even a joke. But the, but the point is, I don't fully believe in the technology or science. Certain experiments work fine um, in the laboratory. They always have great laboratory um, results in a controlled environment. The world is not controlled. And this stuff always goes haywire when they get out into the field. I mean, historically, there are, you know, we're at the anniversary of, of Hiroshima and, and Nagasaki. Mm. And, um, and, you know, when they tested the bomb... Um, the first time in New Mexico, uh, it was only at the last minute that they moved the observers a quarter of a mile further back. Mm. Had they not, they'd have been incinerated because mm. they had no idea what mm. they were dealing with, really. It was all a big guess. They didn't even know if it was going to work. So, 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 you know, the idea worked fine in the laboratory. When they get out into the world, there were just so many variables. And this stuff always happens. Mm. Um, and I think it's the nature of biowarfare and why it terrorizes people so much. Um, and we've seen, you know, the, the really bad results from, from even the mosquitoes, um, sterile mosquitoes being released to stop the spread of malaria. Well, it has to some degree stop the spread of malaria but it's increased all kinds of other problems and this is this is this is why when i hear all these people talking about 
artificial intelligence and you know the extraordinary potential they're going to be able to do this they'll have machines that think and it's just it's just fanciful it's hubris and it 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 is not something that i trust to happen correctly and this is where i think um one should not give the the major players here too much credit for intelligence you know jeff bezos right um all of these people look at them um anyway thucydides mm. yeah yeah sure because i mean the a lot of these uh, promises of, of science and technology amounts to marketing and in, in actual practice the outcomes are, are often quite random and so here's here's the quote re related i think Think, too, of, of the great part that is played by the unpredictable in war. Think of it now before you are actually committed to war. The longer a war lasts, the more things tend to depend on accidents. Neither you nor we can see into them. We have to abide their outcome in the dark. And when people are entering upon a war, they do things the wrong way around. Action comes first, and it is only when they have already suffered that they begin to think. And it's from the Peloponnesian War from 2,400 years back. It's great. But Thucydides is great. Um, I've had a number of requests um, from people who listen to us. And it's always nice to hear from people, by the way. But um, for, for like reading lists and, and to suggest mm. books and so forth. So I'm just going to make a couple of suggestions off the top of my head here. One is Jonathan uh, Crary's book, 24-7. Um, I think is pretty essential reading. And um, uh, I don't know. Anybody else have any any particular uh, book recommendations this week before we sign off? Jonathan Beller has a new book. That's very dense stuff, but but Beller is is very useful. Read read Russell Jacoby's Social Amnesia. Um, I Jacoby gets uh, quoted so often without ever getting the credit he deserves. Um, he's still living in Los Angeles, in fact. Um, Ford, who passed away, John Glenn Ford has a book out. They, they released a book that... Oh, okay. Cool. Is there one that he was working on before he passed away? Oh. Um, I think Shoshana Suboff's uh, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism is a very worthwhile... No, read. I'm going to take it. I'm going to <laughs> yeah, people should read it, but but I don't trust her, and 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 I've had debates with people about. It. There's great material in that book, but um, but her conclusions are, are very reactionary. When you, I've quoted her in my blog, um, but but I'm not. But people you have a disclaimer on it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, trigger warning. Yeah. Um, uh, Tipper Gore um, sticker. No, it's 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 chock full of, um, of of information, and there's a lot of books about social media and stuff. The Twittering Machine, I think it's called Richard Seymour's mm -hmm. book, um, oh, yeah. and and um, you know, and countless others on on that topic. But uh, yeah, I mean, people should start reading again because I spent so much time with Walter Benjamin this week, and and he insisted that. Um, he really believed it was it was spiritually um, impoverishing to not read, to not make yourself read. That 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 it it was a spiritual practice to read. Um, Corey, 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, I agree. Please read. I beg, beg, beg people, please, <laughs> please read. Um, yeah, I'm, I, yeah. I, I just wanted to say, John, one more element of this whole um, experimental vaccine thing which I guess most people know, but don't really think about is not only we're lining up to be um, the free experimental subjects and even, um, you know, queuing up our children to partake in this um, global experiment for big pharma, we're also paying for it. We're actually, right. we're actually going right. to pay. We're paying for the vaccines, we're paying for the facilities, the infrastructure mm. of this whole um, bioengineering economy going forward. And the, you know, the corporations, the billionaires will reap the profits. Yeah. Right. Ah. Right. Um, yeah. I, it, it's, it's staggering. I mean, and people can look up the history of lawsuits um, brought against Pfizer. They've mm -hmm. paid out billions and billions and billions, like 12 different times um, for criminal wrongdoing. Um, it's amazing. And yet, you know, here we are. Um, okay. Yeah. Any, yeah. yeah, yeah. You just say that, that we're, we're borrowing to pay for them. We're borrowing from, from the future to pay for them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and um, you know, and, and the defense industry, the defense budget keeps increasing every mm -hmm. single year. Um, and if you make bombs, uh, you have to use them eventually. And um and they're running out of places to use them. So they, they look to manufacture more places to use them. Um, okay, well, I want to thank everybody. Uh, uh, we planned this on short notice, and it was cool. I think everybody was feeling um, a certain malaise or something. I was, so it's, it's good to talk. And um, so thank you, Johan, Corey, Hiroyuki. Thanks to Jack Lippman, as always. And um, hopefully this will be up very soon. We'll do it again soon. And I hope that we can time it for Varun to be here next time. Okay, adios. Thank, Thank you. you. Take care. See you.